Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the refreshing rain. I pray, God, that your word would be just that to us, refreshment, uh, encouragement. Lord, as we look into this whole created order of angels and then as well of demons, we ask God for insight that we would not overstep the bounds of what your word teaches, but that we would seek to be solidly based in your truth and with this knowledge be able to understand how we can serve you in your kingdom even better in this battle that we are engaged in. And I ask God that you would empower us, give us insight, and Lord Jesus, give us victory, we pray as well. Speak to our hearts by your spirit this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, next week, of course, we are going to be talking about uh, demonization. Um, there is also another lesson in the third tri- the, in the tri- third trimester, and that is uh, that's entitled. Let me just take a quick look here. That is entitled Satan's defeat and our reign. So there's going to be three times in which we are talking about angels and demons or demons and and so on and the battle that we have there so uh, today is not going to be an end all we truly are only going to be scratching the surface one of the problems that uh, I've discovered in our day is that there are a lot of books in the, on the market the Christian market today on demonology that are based very scantily on scripture and Far, far much more, 95 to 99% on experience. Uh, I, I truly believe this is dangerous. We, we need to be very cautious when we are teaching something that goes beyond Scripture. Now, I, I, I've heard their reasons for it. I don't particularly agree with their reasons. Mm-hmm. And it's just that it can, it can truly lead us into, um, in, into living our Christian life so that... What we believe, at least about demons, is much more based on what people have said rather than what God has said. And that's always dangerous. It can, it can open doors. Um, it can cause us to step into superstitions, uh, demons under rocks, etc. Um, and personally, I don't think they fit. But the truth is we can build too much on our experience rather than Scripture. So today, we're going to be doing just uh, the opposite. We're going to seek to found everything that we talk about today on scripture. You see a number of scripture verses in your book there. Um, But I do want to talk about a story that will open the door to what we are talking about today, and it is an experience. When Kate was, and I'm trying to remember, she was either two or three, Julianne was in the oven, Meredith being pregnant, and so she was two, okay. And a friend of ours who was 12 years old, Delia, uh, had babysat our kids a number of times, and Kate was on Delia's shoulders as they were crossing this four-lane road, 25 miles an hour, a road, Atlantic Avenue, down there in Virginia Beach, and it is the road just like any Atlantic Avenue is. It's the road right before the beach. So they're halfway across, and there's a truck coming, and Meredith stops, and Delia continues on, And Meredith sees the car 30 feet away. The truck is going at least 35, maybe 40 miles an hour. um, Absolutely faster than the speed limit. And Meredith steps back and in horror 
hears the truck slamming on its brakes, skidding, and there's a 30-foot, leaves a 30-foot skid mark. And as she sees Delia, it appears she's about to step on the curb. The car, the truck passes her, and Meredith feels relieved she's okay. Only, however, to find once the car, the truck rather, had slid past them, there was Kate, two years old, and Delia laying on the sidewalk. There was a dent in the hood. The passenger's mirror had been damaged. Delia sustained fractures above her ears and in the back of her head. Um, that in itself is another story and a miracle that God did. But Kate sustained only a cut inside her mouth that required one stitch that later that day came out anyway. Um, that is another story in, in what happened after. But you could not help as you realized the damage to the truck and, De and Kate was sitting on Delia's shoulders just how it was that Kate sustained so little damage and it appeared as if an angel had picked her up and gently or at least only said that there was one cut inside her mouth down on the sidewalk laid her down now, that's speculation on my part, but I share the story with you because this is exactly what angels have been commanded by God to do. This is their ministry for those who are heirs of salvation. They are here to protect us, to help us, minister to us. We're going to get into this a little bit more. But we need to discover, I believe, more of what angels and what demons do in our present existence because we're in a battle. And this battle is a serious, severe battle that if we don't understand it, it will go under the radar and we're going to find ourselves in a losing rather than winning battle. So, you have a question? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I hear people all the time <clears throat> talk about person's guardian angel. And does that mean that we have an angel assigned to okay. us, or is that experience and not the scripture talk? So we're going to get into that. Okay. Yeah. A little bit later. Um, and and I, you're probably asking that question even though you've read the verses because I did not label. And, and right. You're just reading scripture verses. I, I, you don't get to read my notes, sorry. Uh, but it is in my notes, and I'm going to touch on that. Mm. Uh, here's a question When were angels created? Anybody have an answer? When were angels created? <clears throat> okay, and how do you know this? A passage that I don't okay, well, good. All right, turn there. It's, it's actually the very first one on here, Job 38. And it says, where were you, God speaking to Job, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who... God can be a little sarcastic too. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together, stars many times are metaphorical for angels, and all the angels, or literally in Hebrew, sons of God, shouted for joy. In, in Job, this, this phrase, sons of God, does refer to angels. I personally don't believe that it refers to angels in the book of Genesis or uh, through Deuteronomy, we see that phrase twice. 
um, Deuteronomy, uh, Genesis 6, Deuteronomy 32. Um, and I, I, I don't believe that it refers to angels or demons at this point. But we, uh, we do find here that the angels or the sons of God were present when God created the earth. Some theologians have said that in, in Exodus, and there's a passage in uh, Genesis 2, one that may seem to refer to this as well, but it says that, that God created the heavens and the earth and everything in them, yes. and that would include the angels. <laughs> it doesn't specify that very clearly. For God to have created the, the heavens may not necessarily mean heaven itself, um, uh, so I don't think we're, we're in, it's, it's incumbent on us to interpret scripture to saying that God created angels on day one and then he created the earth. But I do believe that angels were present when God created the earth. Now, we're aware that scripture teaches about demons. They are fallen angels. They are not a separate created order. They are fallen angels or fallen heavenly beings. And I'm going to make a distinction between angels and just heavenly beings uh, for a good reason that we'll get into a little bit later. I, I think it's a mistake for us to say that all of, you know, there's God created man and then God created angels and then there's Jesus and the Father. Um, there is a created order of heavenly beings outside of angels. Now, when then did these angels sin, follow Satan, and become what scripture refers to as demons, both, by the way, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, these are called demons, uh, the fallen angels. When did the angels fall? Any guesses? Obviously before the creation yeah. of people. Yeah, right. um, I, wanna, I, wanna, I want us to be careful on, on that. But, okay, that, that would be, you would say, before God created man. I think, I don't remember the exact number, but a lot of angels. Okay. So, so they We're going to get into that. Fell. And then okay. following the creation of angels. And if we are to take <clears throat> Isaiah uh, 14 and Ezekiel 28 as references to Satan's fall, and, and I believe that, and that is why it's listed under demons, um, it talks about Satan walking in the Garden of Eden. So I'm going to suggest to you that Satan fell sometime uh, by day, between day six and when God created man and the garden and when God or, or when Adam fell. So sometime before Genesis 3, but after God created man. Why after God created man? Because God created the Garden of Eden for man. And so that happened um, most probably on day six. And then Adam tended it, took care of it. And for Satan to have walked in, um, amongst, uh, in, in the Garden of Eden, then I believe that that would mean that, that, um, that Adam had been tending that garden. So if we, but why, why couldn't that have been after Satan fell? When he was walking in the garden? 
because he's a guardian cherub and the way it's the way it's referred to in scripture um, he talks about walking in the garden of eden before his fall before satan's fall because then he was okay <laughs> all right that, we we can speculate we can look at things etc but the the reality is we don't even know how long it was between day six and Genesis three when the fall took place. We we, we don't know. But um, I would venture to say it wasn't a long time. It wasn't a long time, more than likely, between Satan or Lucifer's creation and Lucifer's fall. What we see here then is God creating angels there was a division we're going to get into later. I hope we're going to have time to, to really get into this. And again, there's so much that we can talk about. We are going to be having to move through this very quickly. I could probably spend the rest of our time just talking about angels, but we also need to talk about the fallen angels as well. So I, mean, I am going to go through this quickly. My apologies. But we do know that there is a division between angels and fallen angels. Hebrews 1.14, let's turn there. May I ask a question? Okay. You know, man was given free will. Um, but I'm wondering if God also gave free will to the angels. Mm-hmm. Because of the fact that they were prideful and fell. Right. I would, that is certainly um, very, very possible. The Bible doesn't necessarily talk about it, but there seems to be this sense of Satan choosing. Then the question is, well, could they choose to sin again? Could angels choose to sin again? And the Bible closes the door on that, okay? The angels will not fall again. And so, maybe just in God's sovereignty, he is not allowing them. How does that play into free will? Again, these are some really tough questions, but we do know, even us in heaven, I believe we're going to have free will because this is the foundation for worship because worship is always a choice. Worship is an offer of love. I don't believe that love can truly exist apart from free will. This would mean that God has free will. This would mean that the angels would have, or all of God's created beings have free will. Um, because this is, you, forced love is not truly love. So, we do know though that in heaven, that there will be no sin, even though there will be free will. Choice. Okay? We will never choose to sin. Okay? Um, that ability, choice, what have you, was allowed and given to Satan when he fell, and therefore, of course, to all mankind. It was Adam's sin that impacted mankind and the entire creation of God, not Satan's fall. Okay? So both were sin, but it was Adam's sin that affected the creation, not um, not Satan's. All right. Because, again, on day six... Um, anyway, let, let me not get into that. Where are we? Hebrews 1.14... It says, "Not all, or excuse me, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit 
salvation. Verse 7. In speaking of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. Now, you remember in the sermon last night that we were talking about Elisha and Gehazi, and Elisha asked God to open Gehazi's eyes, and he was able to see chariots of fire surrounding the Aramean army, outnumbering them and realizing, well, you know, God really is in control here. And at that moment, the, uh, the Aramean army's eyes are blinded, they're led into Samaria, blah, blah, blah. And so, were these chariots of fire, and even the one that picked up Elijah and took him to heaven, was that an angel? We don't know, but we do know that it was a created being. If we're going to call them angels or not, we, we just, we don't know. By the way, you can do a personal word study on this. And there is never a scriptural reference that says angels have wings. So, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love Clarence in um, It's a Wonderful Life. But every time you hear a bell, an angel does not get his wings because apparently, according to scripture, there's many passages that refers to angels and not one of them that talks about angels having wings. Um, yeah, but bells don't mean angels are getting wings. We do, however, see them in cherubim and seraphim we're going to look at in a moment. But these angels, or these, yes, angels are flaming servants of God, and so they may well have, they, those chariots of fire may very well have been angels. The text in Kings doesn't tell us this, but we do know that they are God's army, and that they have surrounded the Aramean army. Of course, the Arameans didn't see them, their spirit. What then can we say is the... Let me just make sure I'm not getting ahead of myself. Yes. What then can we say is the purpose or the mission of angels? I want you to go with me to Acts 12.15. And Leanne, you brought up this concept of a guardian angel. Whether we have guardian angels or not, we do have, God does commission angels to protect us. So they are sent to minister, Hebrews 1.14 says, minister to the heirs of salvation. So that would be all of us who have accepted Christ and chosen to follow him as his disciple, claiming him as Lord and Savior. And we are, therefore, heirs of salvation. God always then also then commissions angels to protect us. Psalm 91, 11 bears this out as well. Uh, we'll get into that in a moment. But what then is the, the mission of these angels? We have a story here in Acts 12 in which... Um, that's right, I wasn't going to read this. I'm just referring to it. But in Acts 12, Peter is put in prison and it is during the feast of Passover. So they wait till after the Passover... And they're going to put him to death. But God has a different plan. God apparently has commissioned or commanded an angel. This angel goes to Peter in prison in Acts 12 and appears to him. Now angels are not obligated to appear to men when they minister to them. And so these, this angel appears to Peter. His chains fell off. Peter gets up, follows the angel, the angel opens the gates, and Peter is set free. This is how God chose to bring protection to Peter at this time. 
As we move on, um, in verse 14, Peter comes to the door of Mary, the mother of John Mark, and Rhoda comes, the servant girl, comes to the door, and in verse 14, when she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she she ran back without opening it, and they exclaimed, Peter is at the door! You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. Now, I am not saying that this passage is confirming a Jewish tradition, because all this passage is doing is showing us that this is what the Jews, or some Jews, believed at this time. And that was that you had a guardian angel who looked just like you. Therefore, when Rhoda sees Peter at the door, it looks like Peter. Their conclusion is, it can't be Peter because he's in prison. This must be his angel visiting us. Now, can you imagine Rhoda? She sees Peter at the front door. Ah! Can't believe it! Can't believe it! They've been praying for him all night. She runs back and talks about him, and there's Peter standing at the door, ringing the doorbell. Someone ever going to open this door? Anyways, the idea is that there is, during that time, the... the uh, Acts chapter 12, there, it was commonly believed among Jews that we had guardian angels and they actually looked like us. Does, is there any other passages of scripture that might possibly bear this out? There is uh, one other and that would be Matthew 18. You can go ahead and turn there. But what we're going to find as you're turning there is the concept of a guardian angel and especially one that just looks like us is speculation. But it does, this passage here in Matthew 18 does seem to lean in this direction. When we look at verse 10, Matthew 18:10, it says, See that you do not look down on one of these little ones. These little ones are followers of Jesus. But some would say, well, maybe here, little ones, he is also referring to the little one that he is in verse 10. Uh, two, it says he called a little child and had him stand among them. Maybe he's referring to children at this point. Um, so how Jesus used little ones um, it, it may change in chapter 18. Uh, earlier, it definitely refers to believers in general. But regardless, let me move on. For I tell you that their angels, that is the angels of these little ones in heaven, always see the face of my Father in heaven. It is interesting how Jesus words this. It uses the plural possessive pronoun there, meaning that these angels belong to these children or the followers, the followers of disciples of Jesus. And so, regardless of whether we view them as children or whether we view them as, as just Christians in general, which seems to be Jesus' point, there seems to be angels that have been assigned to people, and so based on that, people use this concept of the guardian angel. The mission, though, of angels, I think it's it's clear that angels minister or serve the heirs of salvation. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus goes through three temptations with Satan. He apparently is physically weakened. Spent 40 days fasting, and he's been through this rigorous time of temptation. And it says 
that angels came and ministered to Jesus. And Satan left him for a season. Wouldn't that be awesome if Satan left us for a oh, season? <laughs> a lot that could be get, gotten into in Matthew 4, Luke 4 that talks about this. But angels came and they ministered to Jesus. They ministered to the Son of God. So there was something that angels could do to the God-man to minister to him. At least in his natural, physical being. Human, in, in, the, in the flesh. And so... This, we would have to say, this is, this must be one of the purposes of angels. Now, we don't necessarily see them. So what did it, what did the angels actually do to minister and serve Jesus at this point? We, we don't know. It's possible that they brought him food to eat. We, we just don't know. So they do serve, they do minister. Obviously, Matthew 2, Luke 1, we just went through the Christmas story. Angels bring messages. Many times that messenger is mentioned in the Bible with the name Gabriel. I'm not going to say that Gabriel is the only messenger angel, but he is one that's used repeatedly both in Old Testament and New. And so angels are used by God to bring messages. Messages were brought to Daniel. Messages were brought to Joseph, to the Magi, to, um, to Mary, to uh, Zechariah. So that is one of their jobs. They deliver a message from God to his people. It was through angels that the law was given on Mount Sinai. Okay? Um, we find that in Acts chapter 7. Angels did this. Uh, we just read in Acts 12 about deliverance. Uh, we can put that under the heading of protection. Um, but it, it seems to be a little bit more than just protecting. He actually delivered. So angels can deliver us. Uh, very possibly, this would be what happened when Kate was in her accident at age two. God delivered her. They, are, they do protect us. In Psalm 91.11, God commands his angels concerning us to protect us in all our ways. And in num uh, number five, they are... They battle on our behalf. What they ex actually accomplish in this battling, um, we're not exactly sure or clear on, but we do know that they battle. There's a battle described in, in Daniel 10 in which the, uh, an angel comes to bring a message to Daniel and it takes him 21 days and he explains it because he was battling the prince of Persia. We're going to get into that when we talk about demons. But the truth is that there is a spiritual battle that takes place for maybe for protecting us, delivering us from temptation, etc. Yes? The, the, uh, certain angels seem to have a different role than other angels, like you said, delivering a message. Okay. What What is the difference between regular angels and archangels? The only difference is authority. They, I mean, their job description may be different. Um, and in Daniel 10, Michael is called the prince of Israel. There are demons that are princes or rulers of nations. And again, we're going to get into that a little bit later when we get to Hebrew, uh, Ephesians 6. But the, the reality is that even as there's a hierarchy in the angelic realm, there's a hierarchy in the demonic realm. Scripture makes this very clear. Um, it is 
Michael's job to protect Israel. That is part of his function as an archangel. So arch simply meaning higher in the high, higher up in the hierarchy, having more authority, and therefore the part of his job is commissioning angels. They are under his authority as an archangel, and so uh, that, that's pretty much all that we know. And we, we do know that there has been encounters between Michael and Satan, one arguing over Moses' body. We read about that in Jude. And another in Revelation 12, there was a battle that apparently took place at the time of the cross. And a third of the angels, that would be um, Revelation 12, that would be the demons. And Satan took his followers, which would be one-third of the created angels, and they battled God's angels. And we know that this battle takes place during the time of the cross because of the context of Revelation 12. Um, Now have come our salvation. Okay, when Satan was hurled to the earth. And this took place, of course, at the cross. So there was that battle. I don't believe that that battle of Revelation 12 took place uh, before the fall of man um, because the context um, seems to indicate it took place uh, at the time of Jesus' ministry and death and resurrection on the cross. You can read Revelation 12. It is there um, for you to do that, but um, we're not going to be able to get too much into that. Um, so the, the jobs of various angels we were really not told about and, and here's something that we have to be willing to be satisfied with God tells us as much as we need to know okay he tells us as much as we need to know we don't have to dabble into the occult or talk to witches in covens to learn more about demons we don't need to do that all right. Um, <clears throat> the, the the truth is, you would if you're casting out a demon, you never ask that demon questions other than perhaps what his name is, and therefore finding out what his function is and why he would be there. If it's a spirit of lust, then you know that this person is wrestling with lust. Um, but apart from that, there is never a conversation that takes place between a follower of Jesus Christ and a demon. Because Satan is the father of lies. And he is going to lie. Okay? So I'm not going to ever believe a demon. Ever. Now, um, angels. We're talking about angels. And so these are some of the purposes that I'm... Missions of angels. Uh, They minister to serve. They bring messages. Bring deliverance. Protection. They battle on our behalf. And again, Scripture does not go into much more detail than this. And we must be satisfied. This is enough for us to to be victorious in our Christian life. If we talked more, if Scripture laid out more, we would have to ask: Then why why didn't God? What what more could He share with us? And why would He share it with us? Um, there is a very strong temptation on man's part in his curiosity to want to find out more. I mean, even for unbelievers, this is why they get involved in seances. This is why they get involved in the occult. They want to learn more about things that they can't see, angels and demons. And we need to be very cautious of this. The Bible is our only source. Okay, It is our only source. If you pick up a book that is heavy on experience, I'm going to caution you, be careful that... What they have to say is simply 
their experience, and it is not necessarily biblical truth. Okay. Um, yeah, much more could be said about that. Um, and Psalm thirty-four seven talks about the angel of the Lord encamping about his people. Uh, his people may very possibly be um, Israel, and therefore the the angel of the Lord may be Michael the archangel. Again, not much is elaborated on this. It may be that God's angels do that regularly for us and camp about us. Um, it's, it's a good question to ask from Job 1 when Satan says talks about a hedge of protection around Job. What is that hedge of protection? What does that mean? Is it God's mighty hand? Usually, God uses angels to do his work and bidding on earth. So it may well be angels encamped about Job to protect him. Job, Satan's request then is remove those angels, remove that hedge of protection, and let me have Adam, and then, then let's see how righteous Job is. So again, what is that hedge of protection? Uh, we don't know. Satan certainly does. And it may very, they may very well be protecting angels encamped about Job and his family, etc., all right. Um, Colossians, yeah, Colossians one sixteen. Let's let's turn there. Colossians one sixteen talks about the created order, um, and it talks about Jesus being the firstborn. Because he created all things. Now we're going to look at that clearer when we talk about the deity of Christ, how Jehovah's Witnesses twist that around. Uh, actually very significant. But it says here, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, meaning Jesus created the angels. Whether thrones or powers, or rulers, or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. Now, let's realize that he is not just talking about the physical realm here. He is talking about invisible, the spiritual realm. He is talking about thrones and rulers and authorities, uh, a created order that is also spiritual, not just physical. Um, when you look at Daniel, um, one second, Daniel chapter seven, there is a the, that this is the where he talks about the horn and he's being judged by the court, the the council of God, and it says thrones were set in place, and it's in the plural. God is seated, all the angels are standing, and the court is in session. And my question is, then who is sitting on these thrones? Because they are not the angels, they're standing. It is not God, it is some other created order of God. It may be that they are the saints who have died and their spirits are now with, with him. Uh, we don't know, but they are actually a part of this judgment that is now to be placed upon this horn that has been blaspheming God. Um, but there are thrones... 
There are rulers, there are authorities. Revelate, excuse me, uh, Ephesians 6 talks about our, our battles not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. These are demons. Rulers and authorities. There is a hierarchy within the angelic realm as well as within the, the, the demonic realm. Daniel 10 also refers to this, and I've mentioned it. The prince of Persia and the prince of Greece were not literal rulers, uh, physical rulers, that is. They weren't, it wasn't the, he was not talking about Cyrus. He was not talking about um, Nebuchadnezzar or, um, I'm sorry, he mentioned uh, Persia and then Greece. He's not talking about um, the, the king of Greece at that time. He is talking about a fallen angel, a demon, that has been given authority over that nation. He oversees that nation. That is why he is called the prince of Persia, or the prince or king of Greece. And again, as I mentioned, Michael the archangel is called the prince of Israel. So their job is oversight of particular nations. So we do see a hierarchy here. Um, okay. At this point, any questions about that first section on angels? We encounter now two other uh, beings within this created order of God that seem to be separate from angels. The first are the cherubim, the second the seraphim. Now let me just say this, seraphim are mentioned only one time in the scriptures. It is possible that their description uh, may match the living creatures in Revelation. Uh, there are certain elements that do match it, but certain elements of those living creatures that also mirror the cherubim. Cherubim are found throughout the Old Testament. They're also um, appear to be mentioned in Revelation, but cherubim, for example, the first encounter is at the Garden of Eden. When man has been expelled, he places two, not two angels, but it says two cherubim. Two cherubim at the entrance, so that this entrance to the Garden of Eden, Garden of Eden was both the entrance and the exit, the reason for this, and there was also a flaming sword to keep people from entering back into the Garden of Eden as they eat from the Tree of Life and live forever in their sin. So these guardian, these cherubim were guardians of the Garden of Eden. Uh, it does mention that Satan himself was a guardian cherub. It appears that cherubim and seraphim were guardians. We find them uh, in strong connection to concepts of God's holiness and his glory, both cherubim and seraphim. Cherubim, such as in Ezekiel chapter 1, are, if you want to place a location, it seems that they are always located under the, the throne of God. Ezekiel sees them in the, in, in the heavens, he talks about the wheel within the wheel and these four cherubim that move about. 
he says that one or, or that they have they have four faces. One was the face of a man, one the face of an eagle, one the face of an ox, and the other a face of a lion. Now when you read in chapter 10, we read about these cherubim again. They are located as if they are guardians of the holiness of God, and God hovers above them on his throne. The seraphim, however, the only mention we have is Isaiah 6, and they are above the throne of God. And again, there is mention of both God's holiness and his glory in that passage. Um, and so it would be a fair speculation to say both cherubim and seraphim somehow are guardians of both God's holiness and his glory. Um, it is interesting to note in uh, Ezekiel chapter 10, when it describes the faces of these cherubim, instead of mentioning the face of the ox, he mentions the face of the other three, and instead of ox, he says the face of a cherub. So this, the cherubim have the face of a cherub. Now, perhaps that the typical face of a cherubim then would be the face of an ox. Um, they stand on two legs. They have, uh, if I'm not mistaken, they have feet that would be straight like a man's, but would be hooves. So they are not, they do not have the complete appearance as a man. They have wings, many times multiple wings. Um, when we look at uh, Revelation 4, there is a, there's a strong parallel between the cherubim that Ezekiel sees and the cherubim, or these living creatures, that now John sees, and that the faces are the same, except the four living creatures have individual faces, not four faces. There's one that has the face of an eagle, one that has the face of a man, one that has the face of an ox, and one that has the face of a lion, rather than each one having four faces. The idea in Ezekiel is that uh, these four faces faced in the four different directions, the uh, north, south, east, west, etc. And so they do not have to turn. They just move in that direction, even as I would be moving. But they can always see where they're going because they have four faces. You understand what I'm saying here. Um, the idea is that whenever Ezekiel mentions these cherubim, they are always in association with God's glory or God's holiness. Okay? And you can seek to prove me wrong. Read through Ezekiel 1, read through Ezekiel 10, and see if that's not so. Um, the glory fills the temple. We immediately see the, the, the throne of God, the, the, these cherubim. And again, Ezekiel describes them and what's going on. Does somebody have a question? Yes? that he had the face of an ox or he had four faces and, and again the question would be are the living creatures in Revelation are they cherubim or are they seraphim because cherubim that are described in Ezekiel have four wings seraphim in Isaiah 6 have six and these living creatures have six wings so does that make them seraphim um, so the, the, I, I want to be careful in saying this is exactly what a cherubim is and this is exactly what a seraphim is because there is just not enough scripture to be definitive on this. 
So these living creatures, and understand that throughout Revelation, there is a distinction between these four living creatures, and there could be more than four. But these four living creatures are always spoken of separate from the angels. The the tens of thousands and thousands upon thousands of angels gathered around the throne. And the four living creatures and the 24 elders sitting on their throne in Revelation are in proximity of the throne of God. They're right up there. They have front, front row seating and they're in some ways it seems leading in this worship of the God that sits on this throne. Okay? Um, I need to move on. So if you have any further questions about that, uh, I'm just going to encourage you do a word study on cherubim or cherub and see what you find. They are, they're located, there's two cherubim that are, that's above the Ark of the Covenant and it seems as if there is this, as their aim, as their wings are spread out, there's this sense of protection. Protection of what? The presence of God is there. Whenever you read about cherubim and seraphim, it seems that there is an, a strong association with the presence of God. And many times as well, the, the holiness and glory of God. Um, the cherubim are on the paneling throughout the, the holy place. Um, so you, you find cherubim in many, many places in the Old Testament. All right, let's talk about demons. I've got about a little less than half an hour. Um, there, again, there's a lot of speculation about demons. And there's, there's some speculation that I think Scripture will close the door on, um, but others that we're just going to have to say, well, we just don't know. And we need to be satisfied with that. So turn with me, first of all, to Second Peter chapter 2. We know that... There were angels that were at one time holy, served God, but then they fell. And when I say they fell, I mean they sinned. And for this reason, God brought punishment upon them. And we read of that punishment in this verse, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Now, my version says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, there are two more if he did not spare. And then he brings a conclusion. So the way I'm ending this, it it seems incomplete, and it's for a good reason. I absolutely don't want to focus on the other two, Um, if he did not spare, I want to focus on this first one. If God did not spare angels when they sinned, the literal Greek rendering of this is if God did not spare sinning angels. He is making a clear distinction here between holy angels and sinning angels. My question that I bring to the text is, First of all, is he talking about all demons or all sinning angels? Or is he talking about just a group of angels? Because these angels are cast into... Now, my version says hell. The Greek word is Tartarus. It is the only time that it's used in the New Testament. And we're going to get to that in just a moment. We need to first answer this question. Are there two groups of sinning angels, or is there just one? 
because some have brought to the table this concept that this, including Jude 6, which is the next passage, though we're not going to read it, refer to Genesis 6, when the sons of God went unto the daughters of men. That these were angels, and there is another group of angels that fell, separate from the original fall, and these sons of God, holy angels, sinned by going down to the daughters of men, marrying them, and having intercourse with them and producing the Nephilim. I, my personal take on that, I don't think we're going to have time to get into that today or at any point. I don't believe that the sons of God were angels. Um, but some have, have said that there's a good case, and they present it, and there's, there's, some, there's some meat to what they have to say. It's not just pure speculation, but that these were angels. They sinned, and it is this group of angels that has now been sent to Tartarus. Um, I would have to say then that there would be two falls of angels. I'm not sure that scripture supports that. That there would be also a group of sinning angels that God spared. Think about that. If there are two groups of sinning angels, the second of which were those sons of God that went into the daughters of men and created and, and fell into this heinous sin of mingling with humans sexually, and therefore God judged them and sent them to Tartarus, if, they, if, God, if this passage in 2 Peter 2.4 is referring to that second group, and my contention is there is no second group, but if there is, and this passage here is referring to God's judgment on that second group, that must mean that God spared the first group that fell before the creation, uh, fell before the fall. So do you, do you follow what I'm saying here? They say this because how is it that God could take all demons and throw them into hell when Scripture later talks about demons demonizing people. Their conclusion is, therefore, there must be two groups of demons. And my contention, and it's going to be very important for us to understand this, not just for this purpose, but when we talk about the abyss, and, 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 and even Revelation 20, the millennium, and there's, there's truly a, a lot of that we, we need to get this right in order to understand demonic activity in our day. Now, it, hang on. Um, there can only be one group of fallen angels. We call them demons. None of them were spared. All of them were thrown into Tartarus. Now, by looking at that verse, can you see this? Because it says, God did not spare sinning angels. If this is a reference to God judging Genesis, the Genesis 6 fallen angels, then that means he did spare other fallen angels. And Peter's point is that he didn't do that. God didn't spare any fallen angels. Every fallen or sinning angel God brought judgment on. How did he do that? He, he consigned them to Tartarus. So do you see this? There are not two groups of sinning angels. There's only one. All of them are demons, and all of them were consigned to Tartarus. Now here's something we need to recognize. How does it describe Tartarus? What does your version say? Pits of darkness. Pits of darkness. 
Okay? Chains. Okay? They are in chains. Every demon is in chains. You need to understand this. Therefore, these are not physical chains. It's not as if they are physically chained to a wall and they can't get out. But there is a bondage that they are in. And, and when it comes to this, I, I somewhat appreciate Charles Dickens' rendering in A Christmas Carol of uh, his, uh, what is the guy's name, his uh, his partner? Marley. Marley. And Marley comes to the door and he's in chains. Now, please understand that my appreciation is not for the fact that Marley is there, but his description of these chains. Because human beings do not ever wander the earth. Human beings never become demons. Human beings never become angels. They are a totally separate order of God's creation, and they are never mixed. Okay? So, these sinning angels, demons, all of them were consigned to Tartarus. All of them are in chains. All of them are in pits of gloom. And we need to ask them the question, and it's a very necessary question, how is it that these demons then can wander the earth if they've been consigned to Tartarus. And I think our problem is when we, in our versions, have used the word hell in place of Tartarus. Hell is a literal place, okay? It is, you cannot get out of hell. You can't go to hell and then come out. You're there and you stay there forever. Okay? That is a place of punishment and you cannot get out. The Bible never describes the abyss this way and it never describes Tartarus this way. Tartarus, let me say this, Tartarus appears as we research through other scriptures, Tartarus is more in line with a, uh, an, a, a part of the realm of what we call the heavenlies. Now, the heavenlies, uh, I mentioned it last night, the heavenlies is used five times in the book of Ephesians. Every single time, let me just walk you through some of these. Christ is seated in, at the right hand of the Father in the heavenlies. Or your version may say heavenly places or heavenly realms. Um, it is not the typical Uranios, heavenly, but it is um, Ekuranios, and so it is a slightly different form, and it's used slightly differently in the New Testament, especially in the book of Ephesians, where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenlies. We are raised up with Christ, seated with Him in the heavenlies. Now, careful, the heavenlies should not be equated with heaven. It certainly includes it, but it's not exclusively heaven. Now, we know this because in Ephesians 6... Spiritual forces of evil. And where are they located? In the heavenlies. Demons are located in the heavenlies. So my suggestion, if I'm looking for an English word that would best describe this, I, I'm going to shy away from the use of the word heaven, even though that is in this... Literally, it's in the Greek word there. Uranios. But I would prefer to... because Only because... We immediately think of heaven, and that's not what this word is, is suggesting. This word is suggesting a spirit realm. 
That's how I would prefer to translate it. In the spirit realm, as opposed to the physical realm, that is the contrast of of Ephesians 6. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It is against a spirit realm, a demonic spirit realm. Where are they located? In the heavenlies. Specifically, Peter would then tell us, in the heavenlies, yes, but they're specifically located in Tartarus. Again, let's shy away from this concept of hell. I think that's a poor rendering here. Um, Peter specifically takes a Greek mythological term, Tartarus, the netherworld of where demons lived, and he now seeks to extract that word, and he does not use the typical word for hell, Gehenna. He used Tartarus. And can I suggest that hell is for the punishment that, or the judgment that Peter mentions that will happen to them later, but not now. Right now they're in Tartarus, but then they will be cast into hell because hell was created for who? The devil and his angels. Okay? Unfortunately, because of the sin of man, we too will be, excuse me, all those who, who choose not to believe in, in Jesus and follow him, they too will be cast into hell. Alright, so Tartarus, I think it's fair to conclude, is not specifically a location like heaven is a location, meaning the throne room of God, or hell, which would be a specific location. It's not a state of being, it is a location. It is actually separated, even as Hades is separated, from heaven or the throne room of God. We see that in Luke 16, the par- or the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Because they can see across this chasm, and it, these are locations. Tartarus is not that. Tartarus is more of that, a, a, a part of the spirit realm that is specifically for demons. It is a place of torment. Scripture talks about demons being punished right now, awaiting the judgment in which I can only imagine is even greater punishment. All right. So, what I'm going to do here, and we're going to look at this more next week, we have... Imagine this whole board is the heavenlies, meaning the spirit realm. And this right here would be Tartarus. There is... I didn't draw it the way I wanted to. Oh, well. There is a part... Okay, I'll do it this way. There is a part of Tartarus in which... Demonization takes place. Demonization, of course, is when a demon inhabits a person, controls this person to some degree. Why does a demon do this? We are told of only one reason in Scripture why this happens. And we find that in Matthew 12, 43. Matthew 12.43, we're going to get into this a little bit more next week. Matthew 12.43, it says that when a demon is cast, it, when a demon, uh, is cast out of a man, he wanders through arid places, 
seeking what? Does anyone happen to remember that passage? Rest. Rest. He seeks rest. Why would he be looking for rest? He is in Tartarus, and there is pain, there is torment, but apparently, according to what Jesus just described to us there, there is some measure of rest that he finds when he inhabits a human being. That's all that we're told. I don't want to unwrap it more than that. that that's what scripture tells us. We could probably ask another hundred questions about that. But we just know that when a demon inhabits and controls, there is a measure of rest. Now, he is still in Tartarus, and he is still being judged. There is still punishment. We would have to say, though, that there is less punishment, and therefore, when you're contrasting whether he is in a person demonizing them or not, in this realm here that I'm going to label next week, um, or what we'll... We've already labeled it somewhat. The arid places. I'll just put that up here. Arid places. The arid places. He wanders through the arid places. Or... Yeah, I'm going to... There's another term. This, this, a couple others. He, he's looking for some measure of rest. That's why I'm not, I'm not just saying rest as in... Ah, this is great as if there's no punishment. Because Peter tells us no... It's always punishment. But when they're here, there is less punishment or a greater measure of rest. And so that's why demons will seek to control. It eases their torment to some degree. And so there is always a desire for this. Desire to escape to some degree. Burning feeling that loneliness, the whatever it is that they feel in being in, in their punishment in Tartarus. Okay? Alright, now this has implications as we seek to understand the abyss, as we seek to understand demonization and so on. Um, but I'm going to move on so that we, we don't get too bogged down with this. Okay? Alright, were, were there any questions on this? Did you follow it alright? Okay. Alright, so... Every demon is being punished. They have chains, torment, talks about gloomy pits or dungeons, and maybe that is just trying, not so much trying to describe the place, but the type of torment that they are under. And so it is a, spirit, a portion of the spirit realm in which they're being disciplined, they're being punished. All right? Um, we could talk about Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Um, yeah, I, I really do need to do that. But let's let's turn to Ezekiel 28. In Ezekiel 28 talks about in verse 13 you were in Eden the garden of God there were precious stones um, that he was adorned with he was anointed as a guardian cherub for so I ordained you you were on the holy mount of God which simply is a description of the throne room of God um, not 
Mount Zion, you walked among the fiery stones. No clue whatsoever what that is. Um, any answer from what I can gather would be speculation, but it's fiery stones. Angels are flaming servants. Um, anyway, just not enough information is given to us. Uh, through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. Now, he is talking to the, of, of describing rather, the king of Tyre, but he is using, he, as you read through this, let me back up, as you read through this, it's, there seems to be this tension that, you, that we have in saying he is only talking about the king of Tyre. Because if he is, there's a lot of inconsistencies here. To simply say that he was a guardian cherub, okay, even if we use that metaphorically, it just doesn't seem to fit. Okay? So it may be that in some degree the king of Tyre was meant to help protect the Mediterranean Sea. They were Phoenician. The Phoenicians ruled the Mediterranean. Perhaps this is what he's referring to. But there seems to be something, a backdrop, if you will, that he is using to now describe the king of Tyre and his judgments. And that backdrop, I believe, from both Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, is Satan and his fall. Uh, a vast number of theologians would agree with that. There are some that don't. Okay, um, We could debate about this all day, I suppose. But there... there, there I cannot escape this idea that there is a backdrop that the people of Ezekiel's day knew about, and so he's tapping into that backdrop, specifically the fall of Satan, to now talk about the judgment that will come upon the king of Tyre. Um, his widespread trade. Um, my personal opinion on this, that widespread trade was, was the bartering, the dealing with other angels, and it's described as the tail of the dragon sweeping a third of the stars to follow him. In his widespread trade, that is how he deceived other angels to follow him. And they together became the sinning angels. Um, this could be easily applied to the, the king of Tyre. Obviously, widespread trade throughout the Mediterranean and so on. But we do not leave this metaphorical backdrop by verse 15 it seems to continue to talk about Satan and not begin to make this shift strongly to the king of Tyre until about verse 17 or 18 talks about Satan being um, very beautiful uh, Isaiah 14 talks about his um, desire to ascend to the heights of God and to be just like God. And so we see a picture of Satan's pride. Paul taps into that, 1 Timothy 3. Don't let someone who's a new convert step into the office of an elder, or he may be tempted as Satan was and fall into pride. Obviously, Satan's greatest sin was his pride. And Isaiah 14 does talk about that, how he wanted to supersede the authority of God. All right. So that is, uh, in, in my opinion, those two verses, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, 
have a very strong backdrop, uh, prophetic backdrop, and that is the description of Satan's fall. Um, forgive me for skipping Revelation 12. I've preached on that a number of times, and I'm not going to get into that again today, but that is the battle that took place not when the for angels first sinned, and but this is when they actually were kicked out of heaven, hurled to the earth, and Satan from the cross on has sought to attack the saints of God, destroyed the, the kingdom of God, and he is only engaged in a losing battle. Um, and that is the point of revelation. He is only engaged in a losing battle. And we see that ultimate loss in chapters 19 and 20. Um, to some degree I've already mentioned from Ephesians 6 and Daniel a hierarchy or what some people term geographic spirits by geographical uh, because there's the mention of the king of of Greece the prince of Persia uh, even uh, Michael the archangel being called the prince of Israel it seems as if there is a geographical assignment if you will given to them and uh, so for that reason people talk about geographical spirits a serious word of caution we live in a day again as I mentioned at the beginning there's a lot of speculation scripture speaks about geographical spirits I think that's clear rulers, authorities he talks about the powers of this darkness or NIV dark world in, that's the third description in Ephesians chapter 6. Um, rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world. That word for powers is cosmokratos. That literally means world rulers. World rulers of this present darkness. That means that there are demons who literally control the physical rulers of this world. Many times, no doubt, through demonizing them. And I think we could all agree, when you're looking at some of these world rulers, they are, they are filled with sin, filled with Satan. Now, I use Satan generically to refer to his kingdom, um, because I don't believe that Satan can be in more than one place at one time. Okay? He is not omnipresent, he can be in only one place at one time, and he cannot demonize many. I do believe that Satan can demonize world rulers, but that there are also other demons that do that for him. Um, more can be said about that. Geographical spirits, though. Some have taken this idea, paralleled it or coupled it with this idea that we have authority over demons, we can cast them out. Therefore, this is how we need to deal with geographic spirits. We need to cast them out, and if we pray hard enough, fast, and uh, speak boldly enough in casting these demons down, we will eventually gain breakthrough in the spirit realm, the gospel will spread more, and we will see nations coming to Christ. Here's the problem with this theology. You don't find it anywhere in Scripture. I'm going to caution you. Do not think that because we can cast demons out of people, we can therefore cast demons from their high place uh, ruling as world rulers over nations. 
there are world rulers, demonic world rulers, in a, that oversee America, and they wreak havoc. But they are there for one reason, and one reason alone, because we as a nation have allowed them. They have authority there, because we have given that authority to them. We have engaged in sin. The only way to remove a demonic spirit, a geographic spirit, is through an entire nation repenting. Otherwise, they have every right to be there. So we, we, plenty of books talk about prayer walking, and, and I'm all for prayer walking, but then they bring in this concept of geographic spirits and casting them down, and I'm going to tell you, don't do that. Scripture never tells us to do that. There's never an example of it. And I'm going to caution that because it's... I remember when I was a little boy, I stood across the street, I had a rock in my hand, and my brothers and I saw this huge beehive hanging from a, a limb, and we threw it at the, uh, at the beehive. And I tell you what, we've, we eventually knocked it down, and there was an explosion of bees, and we ran as fast as we could. I don't think we, we got stung, but they were really, really ticked. And you could tell that. Don't, try to cast these demons out may very well be like throwing a rock at a beehive. What good does it actually do when they have the authority and right to do and be where they are? Okay? The re Again, it's because of sin. We have allowed them a foothold. And until that foothold is removed, until the, our nation truly repents, they will remain there. And they will be allowed to remain there. No matter how much we pray. So pray for the people to repent. And that's how we, that's how we pull down those demonic geographic spirits strongholds. Okay? Otherwise, we may find ourselves simply stirring up the ire of Satan and accomplishing nothing. Okay? So again, I ex I'm not the only one who takes this position. Uh, there are many others who have, over the years, the, the decades, since this has become popular, of trying to cast down demonic uh, or, or geographic spirits, they've realized this is not a biblical concept. But it still will be in you know, ha ha taking cities and, and how do we do this. You'll no doubt find it in there. And it is just not a biblical principle. Okay, I'm already five minutes after. Can you hold your questions till after the meeting? Great. Okay. I need to wrap this up as quickly as I can. Um, th this might actually be a good place for me to stop. 1 Corinthians 6.3, by the way, talks about us judging angels. I'm just going to kind of toss that out there to you. Um, we really have to look at a lot of scripture passages, some of them from Revelation, about... Uh, what happens when we die and we are in heaven. Um, it, it is very possible that when we are in heaven, we will be judging the affairs that take place on earth. We will be a part of God's counsel. That is certainly a possibility. There are several scriptures in Revelation that would incline in that direction. And we just need to realize that we will have a job when we are in heaven. But Paul makes it clear that we will judge angels. Some of those angels may be fallen angels, and by judge, don't think that we are judging evil. That's not what the word judge always means. It is, it is, uh, it's actually that word judge in, um, 
is it chapter 2 or chapter chapter 3, is taken from Psalm 2, and the word judge is literally, the word, our English word judge is literally the Hebrew word for shepherd. Okay? He shepherds with an iron staff. And so there is that sense of judgment, but the word translated judge, for example, in the book of Judges, simply means to lead. Okay? So we will lead angels, we will lead demons, or that is bring judgment upon demons. Does this take place at the uh, Great White Throne Judgment or something that is an aspect of that? Um, scripture is not clear. But it does, these passages uh, in Revelation does incline that we will have a job when we are in heaven um, awaiting our resurrected bodies. And part of that seems to be sitting on Christ's throne, ruling with him, and part of that ruling may be in what takes place in, on, with the affairs of men on earth. Again, I'm not going to hold to that. that is, there's some speculation involved in that. Um, but scripture, I think, certainly inclines in that direction. Bottom line, the Bible says that we have authority over these, this demonic entourage. Um, there are different kinds of demons. Uh, Mark 9 talks about that. And why couldn't we cast this demon out? Some kinds require prayer um, and, and fasting. So, there are different kinds of demons. We have authority over them. We have authority over Satan himself, the head demon. Okay? However, again, let me wrap it up with this. It has become very popular, especially in the 70s and the 80s, the, to command angels. Hebrews 2 says that we are created lower than the angels. We have less authority than angels. We cannot command angels. The books that have been written about this speak of standing orders. So granted, though we, are, we don't have a, as much authority as angels, we can still command them because God has given us standing orders. And I've read books and they get into this concept of standing orders. It's just that this is not something that Scripture teaches. It is man's idea taking some scripture verses and plugging them into their idea to somehow substantiate it, I'm going to caution us, do not command angels. There's nowhere in scripture that ever speaks that we can command angels. If anything, we were created lower than them, though when we eventually have received our glorified bodies or we are in heaven, um, it appears that we will be exalted above them. But the truth is, here in our earthly existence, we have authority over demons, but we do not have authority over holy angels, God's holy ones, okay? So let's be careful when we are reading these books. Uh, we need to read them with judicious discernment, uh, scriptural understanding, because they can certainly open doors to getting into things that God does not want us to get into. Scripture is enough, okay? Scripture is enough. Let me close in prayer. Father, I, I ask you for wisdom and discernment. There is a battle, and as we'll talk about it more next week, there is a battle that's going on that we need to wage with such perseverance and a mindset that says we will wage it in a way to gain victory and we will not give up. We will march forward. We'll do whatever needs to be done to see the kingdom of darkness 
pillaged so that, so that souls will be rescued and transferred from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of our beloved Savior Jesus Christ. This is our goal. This is our passion. We're engaged in this battle. We do not want to be pulled off the front lines during this battle. And so, Father, if there are wounds that the enemy has inflicted, I'm asking you, God, heal them. Heal them in us, God, so that we'll be able to take our stand in, 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 in every day, at, at every point, against our adversary, the devil, that he would flee, that we would march forward with victory and see your ultimate goal of this world rescued by the gospel and us pleasing you and glorifying you in everything that we do and say. We ask this, God, help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.